Good morning. Um, scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians. <coughs> Excuse me. I have a, the cough that everybody else in the planet has right now, so you might have to bear with me a little bit. Um, we're starting in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints... I do not cease to give you thanks, do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, and that that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what it is what is the hope that which he has called to you, what the riches are of his glorious glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he was raised from the dead and seated at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave his... Him, sorry, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills it all. Amen. And you made it through without coughing. It's good. Well, first things first, the book of Ephesians, it's a great book. It's what we're going to be studying over the next uh, number of weeks as we move into the springtime. Yes, it's coming. You can kind of see that outside today. And uh, this is a book that is really, really good for you to know. It's good to memorize passages from this book. Uh, It will help you in your life. And it kind of, well, more than kind of, it gives us a good handle on how our spiritual life relates in terms of what we believe with what we're called to do. What is it that we really need to know in this life? Uh, I'm saying this somewhat with some sympathy, I think, at least some understanding, uh, but a little critically as well, that if we were to ask what we really need to know in this life, often answers have to do with money. Um, And even those of us who have kids and they're growing and they're adults, um, you think, what is it that you know, are they going to be okay in life? And you think often financially. There's a lot of criticism of this now, which much of it is is good and helpful, the criticism. Uh, People in education, particularly some kinds of post-secondary education, particularly universities, would say, well, there used to be education and now there's just career prep. I mean, education, that kind of education, post-secondary education was originally thought of to help kind of help form a person how you think, what it means, what, what does another person mean, what are the big questions in life. And now, literally, you've made, and I've made jokes, oh, you're taking that, good luck getting a job. What's the assumption there? The assumption is that what we're preparing for, that which matters most, is to be able to have enough money. And it's understandable, as I say, because much turmoil or difficulty can come if we don't have that kind of security. Ephesians is going to do this first things first type of thing. And 
whether you're kind of on that train or not, like whether you're one of those people who's like, you've got to have enough money, you know, it's the real world out there, or whether you're the kind of person that pushes back against that, I think we can all breathe a sigh of relief. When Ephesians goes to first things first, it's not about money. It's just not about money. Here are the first things that you need to know, and it's going to be something different. If you remember the structure of the book, we've given it to you in kind of a metaphor, an image of a mountain, and, you know, it just looks nicer to have two peaks or more. But uh, the way you can think of Ephesians structured, six chapters, and it kind of builds and builds and builds to a peak in the middle of chapter three. And then it's maybe not that fair to say it goes down after that, but what it does is it, it builds to a spiritual peak. So the things you're supposed to know, the first things first, they're just kind of written as run-on sentences and you should hear this, you should know this, you should see this, over and over again. Some of it's not that easy to understand or unpack. And the heart of it is saying, you know, the thing you need to know is beyond all knowing. But here's how you can know it. It's really interesting. And then it builds to this peak and says, I pray that you would know the depth, the height, the width, and the length of the love of God. And that's the peak of the book. And then it gets really, really practical after that. So children and parents, here's how you relate to one another. Spouses, here's how you're to relate to one another. In work situations, here's how you're to relate to one another. But all of that, all of that practical living is in light of the message at the peak. If you know this, if you see this, oh, you'll be so much better in relating to other people. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. It talks about the reality of the world at present. In other words, it takes us to this peak, but it doesn't just offer some kind of platitudes or nice slogans. It understands, well, if you're going to know this, how's it going to affect how you're going to live? And it understands the reality that you're going to have trouble in life, and even at times opposition, and even at times spiritual opposition. That's where you get to another famous passage in the book is that one that maybe you memorized in Sunday school or something, put on the armor of God, right? So the opposition is real. It brings to mind the words of our Lord when he said, in this world you will have trouble. And then some people can say, amen. But take heart. I've overcome the world. So we want to understand both this peak in terms of the spiritual teaching of the book and then how to live. And so all I want to do this morning is simply unpack this text, this uh, second part of the first chapter of the book. He does this wonderful thing first. So he's writing to a group of people at Ephesus, a city called Ephesus. That's why the book's called Ephesians. And it's kind of a church. Well, it is a church. And these people, some of them are new in the faith, and they're, how do we live with one another? What are our responsibilities in this faith? And so he's writing them a letter. We don't know what he's responding to because we're only getting one side of the conversation. And some people have said, some biblical scholars have said, actually this doesn't really look like a letter, like he's responding to questions or circumstance. It seems more like a treatise of some kind that he's written this theological statement and then practical advice after that. It doesn't really matter to us. We don't fully know. But he does get practical and focuses on them right at the start, even as he begins his theological teaching. Firstly, he thanks God for them. And more specifically, he thanks God for their faith and for their love for one another. He says, 
I always thank God for you. I always give thanks for you. In other words, he just isn't thinking into some void, I'm so thankful for so-and-so. He's bringing that thanksgiving to God. I thank God for you. It's an incredible thing to do. And you can pray that you would be able to do that more and more with people in your own life, your own church, and the places where you go. I'm always giving thanks. But the second thing that he mentions early on is that he thanks God for them, and secondly, he asks God for something on their behalf. This is that kind of religious-sounding word, intercession. He intercedes for them. He puts himself in between them and God to some degree, right, spiritually? And he says, God, I'm asking you for something for them. Pretty basic. But then it, that's about as basic as it gets. Because then he gets all mystical. And some people aren't really into the mysticism as much. But it's there. And it's essential in this book. When I say mysticism, you can think of the word mystery. And you can just think that there are people who want everything explained, which is good. We need those people. We wouldn't have bridges if we didn't. Right? But you also need people who say, there's some things that just can't be explained. And so the bridge builders go, well, I don't know about that. You're like, trust me. Like what? Like God's love. It's always speaking in metaphor. It's pictures. And so he's going to do this mystery language to say, and this is his chief concern in the book, in the letter. I pray that the eyes of your heart, which is very much a mystical statement right away. Does, do you, does your heart have eyes? And what does he mean by heart? And someone would say, well, your heart really is just this thing that's pumping. Obviously, he's speaking in that other language where heart means the center of your being, the center of your will. But I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, would have light. And I pray that you would see and know, this is verse 18, So before you are to do things, this is how the letter is written, the hope is and the prayer is that you would see things. I pray, beautiful, strong words here, and I'm saying them and I'm praying them. I'm putting myself now in between you and God, and I'm saying for each one of you, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that, and then he tells us, so that you would know, each of you, I wish I could just name you, go through, but then... You know, it would be too long. You'd like it when it was your name and you get bored at all the others. But anyway, I pray for you that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would know the hope to which you're called. That's my prayer for you all the time. I pray that you'd be healed. I pray that you would get this. I pray that this would be on. Sure. But really the prayer is... I pray that you would know, oh, now say your name yourself. I pray that you would know the hope to which you're called. And then the hope is described, but mystically, it's not clear. It's not financial security, sorry, or a luxurious lifestyle. Though people in Christian history have tried to make it that. They've twisted and perverted scripture to say that, you know, it's supposed to be like that. It's not that. So what is it? I pray that you would know the riches, so there's riches there, the riches of his glorious inheritance, the immeasurable greatness of his power 
towards us who believe. So right away there, and some of you get uncomfortable with this, and some of you cheer it on. So it's good. We've got both types in churches. As soon as you say, I pray that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those of us who believe, you think, oh, there's a distinction between those who believe and those who don't. And there is some kind of distinction here. But the distinction is not that, like, some people are bad and some people are good and God loves some people and not others. It's not those kinds of distinctions at all. The distinction is that those who have seen this glorious hope have and understand a power that if you haven't seen it, you don't know it. The the distinction will be played later in the letter talking about things like life and death. You were in darkness, now you're in light. You were dead in sin, now you're alive. It's, it's there. But it's not there for us to push other people away. It's there for us to move towards other people as Jesus Christ himself did. So it's not easily understandable, but it's right there. Verse 20, this power that he works, so now he gives an example of what the power does. This power that he, God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now this is a profound potentially, you know, you'd think, well, that just doesn't make any sense. Uh, It's big. What he's saying is, the power that you have in God, when you see his love, is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And you think to yourself, I don't know how to get through Wednesday. I don't know how to deal with this stuff I'm dealing with. What? So that's, it just brings us to ask a question. What on earth does it mean that we have power like that. And because we live in a world that you think power equals getting things or, you know, getting higher, we think, therefore, power equals, well, if I have power, I can get what I want. And I can make people do things. It's not the kind of power he's talking about. I pray that you would know that you have the power, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is working in you. Now, consider for a moment that that power might get you something better than simple earthly success and achievement. Because you know already, don't you, that that doesn't cut it. This power gets you to see something eternal and good and beautiful, the best ever. I'd rather have the stuff. Do I get the things as well? We sometimes say that. Jesus says life over death, light over darkness. This same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Death has been defeated. We'll say that again at Phoebe Jean's service in just a few minutes. Death has been defeated in Jesus Christ. Love over hate and despair and fear. So then the rest of the passage is just a Christ hymn. This often happens with Paul. I don't know if any of you have experienced this in your faith. You're talking to somebody about Jesus and you say, or about faith or whatever, but this more specifically about Jesus Christ. Uh, This is what it's like that Jesus Christ Christ was raised from the dead. And then Paul kind of goes, oh, Jesus our Lord. And then goes into this hymn to Jesus and talks about him being exalted, the one who has loved us, the one who has given all the one who has humbled himself, the one who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, the one who made himself a servant, the one who, if you look at him, obviously he does not see power as the rest of the world sees power. 
the need of every human heart. He just sings this hymn to Jesus Christ. And then he says, and now he is exalted. And that exaltation, the words Jen read for us, it's fantastic. Don't miss this in your scripture. That exaltation is not just the highest power. He doesn't say that. He is exalted above all power. Anything that you think is power in human terms, he's above that. He's not the most powerful kind of person because his power is an entirely different category. And he demonstrates it to us in loving us while we're sinners, in giving his life for the life of the world. Where will you most see his power? On the cross and then in the resurrection. This is a creation and a recreation and a redemption. Without him, this is from John chapter 1, another kind of hymn to Christ. Without him, and the language is beautiful, and it's clunky on purpose because it's supposed to make you think. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He is above all things. He is before all things. He is preeminent. In him all things are held together. He is before all things and he is the completion of all things. History is headed to completion in Jesus Christ. This is what Christian faith says. One day, we looked at this in the first part of the chapter. It's there if you want to go back. One day, all things will be united in him. In other words, you have a hopeful faith. You should live a hopeful life. Too often, we have portrayed the faith in a way that is fairly hopeless. Like, you know, that we get rescued off a sinking ship. It's so much better than that. The distinctions are there in terms of life and death. But it's always hopeful towards this recreation. It is not earthly power, nor money, nor wealth, nor political power and influence that we're talking about in Jesus Christ. If it was earthly power, money, or wealth, or political influence, if that was the end, then Jesus Christ did not accomplish much in his lifetime. He was in most ways a failure by the standards of the world. So why are you trying to judge yourself by the things that he never had? His power is life beyond all of these earthly things, and this is our hope. So why did these people need to know this, and why do you need to know it? Well, firstly, in their case, as I mentioned, we don't really know specifically what they were asking, if anything, for this letter to be a response to. It's in some ways better that way, because we don't have to share a particular problem with them to understand what's being said and to know how it's addressed to us. For them and us, firstly. Now I ask you this differently than I mentioned it before and ask you just to imaginatively think about this. Can you imagine if just even this morning, and you can pray, Holy Spirit, direct me in this way. I had this happen to me earlier this morning, sitting with somebody, and I just felt God again. This happened numerous times to me in the past number of months. They're talking away, and I felt, and I'm mostly listening, but um, I feel God saying, do you have any idea how much I love this person? And you know what happened? Their face changed. 
I mean, it probably really didn't, but it did in my sight. They're known by God and loved by God. I always thank God for you. If we could be a community that's more and more marked by that, those people are just thanking God for one another all the time. For their faith and for their love for one another. Martin Luther, the reformer, put it this way. He said, when God creates faith in a person, it's a work that rivals the recreation of heaven and earth. Whenever God brings about faith, there is necessarily a new birth and a new creation. You are in Christ, our scripture says, a new creation. And then is this prayer that they would be granted such faith and such sight. I read this article this week, um, and it was about housing. It was about a lottery, but it was about housing. And it's from New York City, but we can understand it in Vancouver. There's a housing lottery in New York City for people who are in need. Now, are you ready for me to tell you who's in need? I think the income is like from $40,000. So if you're below $40,000, you're like an extra category of need. So you don't qualify for the housing lottery. You get something different. So it's like $40,000 a year of income to I think it was like $114,000. Those people qualify for the housing lottery because it's so expensive. So they can be chosen to enter into subsidized housing. And you can look it up in the New York Times. The article's there with pictures of people who've won the lottery. And so this gentleman was chosen. The odds of winning the lottery currently are 1 in 592. And that's each year. Your odds don't get better by waiting. Right? If you flip a coin and you get three heads in a row, you're not like, I know the next one's tails. It's still 50-50. And so for these people, it's getting, actually the odds are getting worse. 592 this year, probably higher next year. And so the article was just going through, this gentleman won the lottery, and he's got this place that costs such and such. Uh, there was one, I've only got two pictures, but one woman, um, and it looked like a nice little bachelor suite she had that uh, was $177 a month she had to pay. That's it, because most of it was subsidized and based on her income. Somebody else who'd won the lottery, they must have been closer to the higher end of income. They were paying $2,300 a month for rent, but they'd won a lottery to be able to pay that, subsidized. I mention this because it helps us to understand. You can see how happy she is. Um, it helps us to understand sometimes how we think about these big things in life. If only, if only this could happen for me, and then I'd be okay. It's a nice article to read, mostly, until you read the comments. And there were like 900 and something comments. I didn't read them all. But some of the comments were like you could think. Well, good for these people. I've had this need, and I don't make nearly that much money. It's good to know that they're letting people into the lottery who are fine. In other words, if only this happened for me, but that kind of thinking at times can purposefully or inadvertently separate you from other people. Well, good for her. There is a distinction. When Paul talks about seeing the love of God a distinction from this way of thinking that doesn't hold that us and them thinking. Can you be happy for someone whose needs were met if yours are not? The difference in talking about the prayer that people would see is, I pray that you all would see. And when you see, you don't hold something that you think, I'm so glad I have that and that separates me from people who don't. 
you pray that they would see and know. And there's no qualification. I pray that you would see. So, and what's interesting in this article was it also talks about the lengths that people have to go to to get into the lottery, the paperwork and the stuff. And the, so sometimes in the church and in religious thinking, you can think, okay, this sounds fantastic, this knowing the love of God, and then I'll be able to have a life that's so much better. Now, I'm warning you, you might still have a difficult life, but you'll certainly have a different perspective. And you think, okay, so what am I supposed to do to get it? Give me the paperwork. And then somebody like me goes, oh, there's no paperwork. What do I have to do to get it? Well, unfortunately and fortunately, the text tells us how you get this. It's by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, if you long for this for your child, you can't make it happen, no matter how desperately hard you try. And sometimes the harder you try, the more you inadvertently push them away. And so, because we live in this world where it's like, if only they had enough and they got enough security, you sometimes think with those you love or care for or others, you think, my hope for them is that they would do something. Here, the first thing is, my hope for them is that they would see the love of God. The only thing I can give you in how you get this is that you humble yourself and you ask. And you say, and even if it sounds really wooden, and why am I praying to a spirit? What is this? I'm not religious, whatever. But you pray, dear Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, whatever, right? Dear God, I want to see. And all I can say to that is God is good. It's different even if you're praying for somebody else. I pray that they would see I pray that I would know the hope to which I'm called. But it's plural. Always plural, both individual and plural. I pray that we would know the hope to which we're called. I pray that you would know the hope to which you're called. Then the kind of challenging question for us becomes, do you live like someone who has hope? Or are you, as a Christian person, who supposedly has this great faith in Jesus Christ, are you more upset about things than those who aren't Christian? We are to be hopeful people. As we believe that one day all things will be united in him. People right away say, well, what does that mean about salvation? I'm not making a salvation statement here. I'm saying what scripture says about the end of all things. And that's hopeful. And so you're invited to respond. So your first prayer, and for others always, for self I suppose as well, but for others always. So we come here, we pray for George, that he would get home and that he would feel better. We need to keep praying that. You know what our first prayer is? That right now at this place where George is struggling, dealing with this recovery, that he would know the immeasurable love of God. And we could just go down the list. For Betty, who's struggling so much that she would know God's love. And for those who have not ever responded to the love of Jesus Christ, we pray the same thing. This is a resurrection life, power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the one who has defeated death. In fact, same writer in 1 Corinthians says, many of you have memorized this verse. It's good to memorize it if you haven't. If Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain 
and your faith is in vain. In other words, the heart of this is that Jesus Christ gives us this hopeful faith in resurrection being stronger than death. That's our hope. So we look around and we say, oh my goodness, there is so much terrible stuff going on. Don't even know how we're keeping going sometimes. And I hear that too. And I'm with a lot of people. I think, oh my, how do they deal with this and then this and then this? And we can go through this thing. If we could see, I often think of this, there's like infrared lights to see things and you can see the plaque in your teeth and whatever. If there was like a concern light, what is it that you're carrying? And we could shine that over this congregation right now. Not for anything but a good purpose. My goodness, what we're carrying. And even in the midst of that reality, this is the message. We have hope because Christ has been raised from the dead and he is loved in God and we are loved in him. Don't let people sell you a cheaper promise. Things you get, health you get. You might and you should give thanks if God blesses you in such ways. But it's better than that. Even, even, when things are happening that you don't want to happen. Even your own sin, your own failure, will not defeat the love of Jesus Christ. It won't. But if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And finally, consider the power that is promised to you. This is an interesting one, and it fills us with such life And remember, this is a power that is not the kind of nature of earthly power. People take this, unfortunately, at times, and they use it as kind of an earthly power type example. Like you've been, remember, you have power, Christian. You have power to do anything you want, so just pray for that thing. That is not, the verse is saying something so much better than that. The same power is at work in you that raised Christ from the dead. As God gave his son for the life of this world, So you, how does this work? And I can't describe how it works except I see it sometimes in conversation with and among you. That we both, two people talking, we both know that same power. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, this is the biblical claim, is working in you when you respond the love of God in Jesus Christ. Power to see, to hope. I've said this before. I get song lyrics in my head sometimes. And when I think of God's power in Christ as compared to earthly power, I think of an old Dave Matthews song. Dave Matthews raised Quaker in South Africa and then certainly didn't, doesn't want to be identified as Christian, but only sings about God and death, mostly. And he he's more with these lines, these words in my head. He says, look at me. And he's a bit aggressive in it. He's like, look at me in my fancy car and my bank account. Oh, how I wish I could take it all down to my grave. God knows I'd save and save. And then he says, take a look again. Take a look again at all the things I have collected. Well, in the end, they'll all pile up so tall to one big nothing. One big nothing at all. We're not talking about earthly power. We're talking about something so much better. 
And you don't have to attack those who have a lot in this life and have done well in the eyes of the world. It's not about that. But it's about saying, no matter what, no matter who, no matter how much, I can know this power in trusting in Christ Jesus and be filled with a hope and to know that in the end, maybe it takes somebody like me telling you this, Christians and non-Christians here, but this is Christian faith. Did you know that in the end, he will renew all things? This is a hopeful faith. Wipe away every tear. Resurrection is the goal, not death. In Jesus' name, amen.